Well, okay, this is this is the Frogs War podcast, I guess. Um, I'm Jamie Plunkett. I'm, uh, quote, Coach Melissa Treewasser, unquote. Fake coach. Yeah. Fake news. You are the fake news football coach. Isn't that true? With your hat. Yep. The visor. You put your coach hat on. Yeah. Yeah. You haven't earned that visor. Yeah. Anyways, we'll get into what we're talking about in just a moment, but this is the Frogs War podcast here after another bad week for TCU football. 24-17 to loss to Kansas State up in Manhattan. A game that was very winnable for TCU, but just more inconsistency from the offense, more inconsistency from the defense, led to uh, missed opportunities and some things that Kansas State was really able to take advantage of on the way to TCU falling to 3-3. Three and three. I mean, you say winnable, but I don't necessarily know what a winnable game for TCU looks like at this point. It has been so long you know, since we've seen one. That's a fair. That's a fair retort. I, I think a winnable football game. You know, if you lose by a touchdown or less, I, I would consider that game winnable. Now, granted, there are the uh, there's the occasional game that is you know the score doesn't reflect how big of a beating it was, but. This wasn't the case against Kansas State that TCU was just completely out of it at really any point in the game until they took over with two seconds left on the clock and they did the sweet lateral play that lasted for one lateral because it was an illegal forward pass. So <laughs> so fitting. You know, I, I think it was winnable in the in the in the fact that TCU had the ball with like two forty five left down a touchdown. Well, and they had just started to get a little bit of momentum. And, you know, you could have tied it right there and either done what Kansas did against Texas later in the evening and go for two to win it or play for overtime and anything can happen. You know, I, I think it was a winnable football game uh, that TCU did not win, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, clearly the answer here would have been more Alex Delton, according to most of our fan base. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was... It's one of those that you're going to look back on, much like the SMU game, and think, wow, the Frogs really had a chance to, to do a lot of things right and didn't capitalize on any of them. But by the same token, it wasn't like anything that I watched into the fourth quarter made me feel like at any point TCU was in control of what was happening around them. And that to me is what's been the frustrating thing about this season is that even in the games they've been, they've been in – there's not a whole lot happening that inspires confidence to make you think that this team knows how to turn it on and finish the job. And I feel like we're running out of excuses as to why that is. I don't think we're running out of excuses. I think, I think just the same excuses still, still exist. I, maybe they're not excuses. Maybe they're just reasons why this team isn't very good this year. Maybe that's a better way to frame it, because this team isn't very good this year. I think we've you know we've seen six examples of this football team out on the field playing another opponent. They're three and three. They realistically could be, you know, four and two if you give them a if they don't botch a snap against SMU. They could be five and one 
if they overcome some inconsistencies this past Saturday, but the reality is they weren't good enough to make those plays and get the job done uh, because the passing game is lackluster. Receivers are dropping passes. Duggan's accuracy isn't where it needs to be. The offensive line really struggled in the fourth quarter on Saturday against Kansas State, especially on that last full drive that TCU had that ended with Duggan getting sacked on second down and then just getting obliterated one second after he snapped the ball on fourth and 11. Um, Defensively, we have linebackers who really struggle to identify a play action. You know, two of Kansas State's touchdowns came on play action passes on Saturday where the fake handoff totally took Garrett Wallow out of the play. Like, he got all the way down to the line of scrimmage before he realized that it wasn't actually a run play. And the middle of the field was wide open. The third touchdown that Kansas State had was set up by play action where the same thing happened. You know, I understand that Wyatt Harris is a true, uh, true freshman linebacker, and he had some really good moments on Saturday. But ultimately, this defense, as senior-laden as it is, isn't where it needs to be. This offense isn't where it needs to be, despite what we perceive as some legitimate talent at the skill positions. It's just not a good team. And you can make excuses for that. I just call them reasons that this team is average. Um, It's just not a very good football team this year. Yeah, I I mean, I think that's a fair assessment. And and people keep looking for things we could tweak and things we could change and and what should be happening and what should be different and who should be playing. But, But at the end of the day, I mean... I, I really do feel like Gary Patterson and company are trying to put the best 11 guys on the field in every aspect of the game. Those are just the best we have right now, and that's clearly not good enough. Um, and, and maybe it's deeper than just a talent thing. I'm certainly willing to ask those questions and explore that potential, but at the end of the day, like this is not this is not a team that can compete with the best in the Big 12 as they're currently constructed, but also as they're currently playing. You're right. It's an execution thing. Uh, And it is, I think, to an extent, a coaching thing on both sides of the football this year. Yeah. Um, You know, it's and it's disheartening, too, because you look at this roster and you see, especially defensively, Vernon Scott, Ennis Gaines, Jeff Gladney, Julius Lewis, Ross Blacklock, Corey Bethley, you see Shamik Blackshear, who was supposed to come in and be a pretty good defensive end. You see, <clears throat> excuse me, all of this like senior and junior leadership, and they're just not getting it done. You see guys who have, you know, I mean, Garrett Wallow is a tackling machine, but in reality, he's he's got some some blind spots in his game right now too. And so on paper, you know, this defense is something that was supposed to really carry this offense early on in the season, and they haven't done that. Um, And I got roasted on Twitter a couple of weeks ago after the Iowa State game for for putting some of the blame at the feet of the defense for that loss because they gave up almost 50 points to Iowa State, which frankly just should never happen. Um, You look on the offensive side of the ball and you see Lucas Niang and Anthony McKinney, you see Jalen Rager, uh, Darius Anderson, and Shewa Alanalua, and all of these guys who are, are so, so talented, and yet, you know, they're not being put in a position to succeed. You see a true freshman quarterback who can run the hell out of the football. I think 
we saw firsthand on Saturday how tough and unwilling to quit Max Duggan is. But he's not being put in positions to succeed consistently. And that's not an execution thing from his standpoint most of the time. That's coaching. That's not, you know, Parker said it best last week in the Stats of War podcast. I think he's written about it too. Lincoln Riley said a while back, um, if your offense isn't quarterback friendly, it's a bad offense. Or something along those lines, I'm paraphrasing. And right now, TCU's offense isn't quarterback friendly. No. Because you're either asking Duggan to throw a screen pass to Rager three yards behind the line, which doesn't put Rager in a position to succeed, or you're asking him to throw it 35, 40 yards downfield, but there's nothing intermediate. There's no intermediate passing game. There's no quick tempo. There's no, hey, let's think less and just play more, which those are the moments this season that TCU's offense has been successful, and for some reason they keep moving away from it. Well, and here, here's a question. None of us are football coaches. I mean, I'm sure some of the people that are making these comments are football coaches, but these all seem like pretty basic things to understand from a perspective of somebody watching the games unfold. And yet, week to week, we're not seeing these adjustments being made. I mean, we're talking basic route concepts, basic play concepts, basic play action. I mean, things that every Mm -hmm. playbook has going down to the middle school level. And yet, they continue to stubbornly roll out the same offense week after week with very little desire to, to do things to make it more quarterback friendly. Like, what what are we missing here? Like, what is happening that that is making this be the case? I just, it, it seems just almost inconceivable that there wouldn't be these basic, easy-to-see adjustments being made in the playbook. I You know, that's a really good question, and I don't know that I have an answer to it. I think the only people that have answers to it at this point are Patterson and Cumbie. Yeah frankly, and they're not going to give up that answer very easily, if ever. I I think, from what I've seen, what we're witnessing on the field is a product of tension in the coaches' room, hmm. frankly. I think what we've seen is an offensive coordinator who was stubborn enough to finally get his quarterback on the field, because I think from the moment that Duggan stepped on campus... Cumbie wanted him as the starter. Sure. I think he wants to go fast, but I think he's concerned about putting Max in a position to make a bad play or throw an interception or turn the ball over or whatever. And at the same time, I think Gary Patterson, ever since Baylor in 2014, has been a little bit averse to going as fast as TCU used to go. Because his defense had started to see 80, 90, 100 snaps again on the field, a game on the field, and they were getting worn down, and the Frogs were starting to give up more and more points. And ever since the defense got exhausted at the end of that game, ever since the bad calls in that game that broke everybody's heart and lost that game, we've seen TCU's offense gradually slow down year over year over year from 2015 when it just didn't feel quite the same as 2014 offensively, even though you had Boykin and Doxson and all those guys still, to 2016 when you're trying to replace NFL-caliber talent with Kenny Hill, to 2017 and year two with Kenny Hill where he was a better quarterback, but the offense moved even slower, 
And then you had Sean Robinson last year. You've got a true freshman this year. So it's kind of come to this grinding halt over the course of the last four football seasons. And that's not on the offensive coordinator because they had found something, I think, in the tempo of 2014 and 15. They found something that worked. I think the directive to slow down came from Gary Patterson so that he was keeping his defense fresh for the fourth quarter putting them in a better position to succeed. Because I think from his perspective, if you have a fresh defense in the fourth quarter and you hang your head on defense, then you're going to be able to shut people down. It doesn't matter if you score 20 points or 50. But that just hasn't been the case. And I think, you know, TCU fans have a right, really, to be frustrated at this point, even if it means that there's a lot, a lot, a lot of nonsense being typed on websites right now. Well, to me, there's a difference between being stubborn and being smart. And it doesn't matter how good your defense is. When you're playing offenses the caliber of Texas and Oklahoma and even Iowa State and Oklahoma State, you're still going to need to score 20-plus points to win games. We've seen that. I mean, even that 2014 year when the Frogs forced, I think, 40 turnovers or close to it, they still needed to outscore some folks along the way. And, and the Baylor game got out of hand, but if you're using a one-game sample size to basically hamstring your offense for the next five years, that's on the coach. And, and that's, that's being stubborn and not, not being smart. And, and I, think, I think you nailed it on the head. I mean, I think you're making really, really great points. And so I think that brings up a whole other set of questions too, is that, you know, at what point does Gary Patterson have to look and say, hey, my defense isn't very good this year. We're going to need to score some points. I'm going to have to loosen the reins. I'm going to need Sonny Cumbie to quit coaching scared and start coaching to go out and win games, not coaching afraid to lose. And, and that starts by taking the governor off of this offense a little tiny bit and saying, hey, Max, go out and throw an interception. Because the thing that's been really hilarious to me is, and, and I completely agree with, is that people are complaining that he hasn't turned the ball over through the air because that means that he's not taking risks that they're not trying to push the ball that they're not trying to make plays and I think people are absolutely mm-hmm. right in saying that I mean this is an offense and an offensive coaching staff that looks like they're so afraid of making a mistake because it's going to cost them their job and there is nothing worse than coaching scared playing scared working scared to make sure that you do anything but maximize your ability to be successful or minimize your ability to be successful I should sorry I should have checked my uh, I should have had someone proofread that statement I'm sorry. I'll proofread it the next time you say it out loud. But, you know, they. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think the fact that he hasn't thrown an interception this year is commendable, but not really impressive. Concerning, yeah. If you've, if you've watched the games that have been played, because, I mean, he didn't start the first few games. Uh, he keeps, for some reason, after he leads TCU on touchdown drives, getting replaced by another quarterback. Uh, and all of his passes either are at the line of scrimmage or 35 to 40 yards downfield. And those just neither of those present an opportunity that is, you know, very risky. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's a cool thing to say that we have a true freshman quarterback who halfway through the season has yet to throw, throw an interception, but it's indicative of the lack of creativity on this offense, the lack of willingness to really put him in a position to make a boomer bust play. Um, and we've seen the results of that decision on the field in a three and three football team that everybody is wondering 
where's the next win going to come from? Because you look at this schedule, and Melissa, we play Texas this week, and after that, it doesn't get any easier. So, you know, th- this team is very much in danger of three and nine, four and eight if they don't get something figured out. And I don't know that TCU fans are going to be able to mentally handle two bad seasons in a row. Well, and the thing that's so frustrating is just the uncertainty around this team is that you look at them and you say they're three and three, and you're looking at a path where there's not a really easy, not that there's ever an easy, but a really clear path to a bowl game. And, and you've got Gary Patterson on one hand saying, hey, I wanted to get Alex Dalton in the game more. I wanted to I wanted to, to play him more. And on the other hand, on this conference call today, um, saying, let me get the, the quote right here, um, he's as far as practice and everything else, he's been the best one of the group of Max Duggan. Uh, and then he goes on to say it's pretty simple. We're like eating, pay our bills, but at the end of the day, when you evaluate the guy you're going to play with and you feel gives you the best chance to win, that's what the reason we're playing Max because he's giving us a chance to win. And so you have them on one hand saying, "Hey, we got confidence in this young kid. He's he's done the best of everything else." But on the other hand, saying, "But I'm really trying to get." And, and I used the the phrase force-feeding him onto the field, and I stand by that phrase despite the fact that last I checked, 25 people told me what an idiot I was. But they are forcing Alex Delton into game situations that are not giving him a chance to be successful and are not giving the TCU offense a chance to be successful while telling us, on the other hand, oh, hey, Max is the guy. He's the best one. If he's the best one, freaking let him play. You know, let like give the dude an open playbook and let him play at this point this is a bad football team. Let's see what he can do going forward. He's the quarterback for the next four years, barring Matthew Baldwin coming and taking the job from him next season. But quit quit telling us he's the guy and then not showing us at all that you actually believe he's the guy. That That's what's been so frustrating. Like, let's call it what it is. Let's go full rebuild and just open things up and see what this team can do. Because I think if you, start, you stop playing scared and you stop playing afraid to lose – and you take some chances, sure things might get ugly, but at this point, I don't think it's going to get much worse than what happened at Iowa State and what happened in Manhattan last weekend. This team can't be, I don't want to say more disappointing than they are. Um, I hate talking negatively about players and coaches. I hate calling for people's jobs. That's not who I'm in. It's not what I'm about, but at this point, it's kind of like, hey, we are who we are. Let's just see what they've got going forward. Let's open things up, have a little bit of fun, and see if if maybe they can't go and ruin someone else's season, namely the Baylor Bears on November 9th. Right. And you know, something too, Andy Dalton, his redshirt freshman year, threw more interceptions than touchdowns. And everybody was screaming for Marcus Jackson and everybody (laughs) wanted the other guy because Andy, as a redshirt freshman, clearly just didn't have what what it took to be a football player at the collegiate level according to <laughs> everyone what it felt like at least that point was that 90 95% of the TCU fan base but there is no doubt that that adversity and those experiences of putting the ball um, down the field and making mistakes grew him up more than trying to overprotect a quarterback to the point where you've totally crippled the offense you know and you know Justin Fuente, I don't know if it was foresight or if it was just wisdom or he was stubborn enough to insist on his game plan regardless of who was the, the, the quarterback, put a freshman quarterback on the field and said, you're going to run this offense to the best of your ability right now. We're not holding back. We're not coddling you. We're not going to do anything 
to stifle the creativity of this thing, you're going to either execute or you're not. And TCU went seven and five that year and everybody was miserable. And then what, what's the end of that story? Two undefeated seasons, two BCS bowls, right? Rose bowl championship. Am I saying that Max Duggan's going to be Andy Dalton? No. But what I am saying is that if you don't give a young quarterback opportunities to fail, then they're not going to know how to respond when they do. Well, well, here's if here's, you're not giving a quarterback an opportunity to to run your offense, then when you really need him to run your offense, he's not going to be able to. Well, here's the difference. On one hand, you have Justin Fuente, who Gary Patterson clearly trusted and believed in and had faith and confidence in and thought was the right guy for a job. On the other hand, you have Sonny Cumbie, who Patterson has given the vocal vote of confidence, which is always the kiss of death, but has made it very, very clear he has zero confidence in. And Fuente wasn't worried about losing his job. He, he was willing to go toe-to-toe with Gary Patterson and say, this is the kid that's playing, this is how we're running the offense. You're going you're gonna to learn to live with it. And it was a little more conservative than what we initially saw in 14 and 15 under Cumbie and Meacham. But, but Cumbie is, is not doing that. And, and I don't, frankly, blame him. I mean, he has not been given any reason to feel like he's, he's trusted as a play caller, as an OC, as a, as a whatever else. I mean, he, he, looks, he looks like he's constantly towing the line. And, and maybe, that's, maybe that falls on Patterson, too. Like, we, we can all sit here and complain about Cumbie. Like, I, I don't think anyone's going to sit there and say, yeah, I really feel like he's called a great, a great game week in and week out. Or, he, yeah, he's really doing the right things with the offense. But at the end of the day, like, when you work for uh, – Gary Patterson's made it very clear he's not easy to work for. And I don't think anybody mm-hmm. thinks otherwise. And, and when you work for, for someone who – head coaches are control freaks and they're overbearing and all of those things are what make them successful. But can you blame him for, for looking a little sheepish in, in the way that he's calling games? It, it, maybe the personalities just aren't, just aren't working. Maybe you have to be able to kind of get up in, in GP's face a little bit and say, no, this is what we're doing deal with it maybe maybe Fuente had that and and maybe Cumbie does not Meacham certainly did but look where that got him I mean poor dude got exiled to Kansas so that clearly didn't work out for him no it didn't it and it brings up the question you know how much did um the players prop up the play calling in 14 and 15 which I think is a legitimate question um but at the same time at some point, you've got to call good plays, sure. and we saw good play calling in fourteen and fifteen. Yeah. We haven't seen it really Absolutely. since since twenty seventeen. Like that's the thing too is, do you remember in sixteen and seventeen with Kenny Hill how frustrated people were with the offense and the play calling? Because all I can remember is us having to go and defend Kenny Hill by saying, "Look, they're playing to his strengths, and his strengths were." 15 yards downfield and in towards the line of scrimmage. That was his strength as a passer. You had a dynamic running game. He was capable of running the football. You had good wide receivers who could create space and get their hands on the ball. Um, but the frustration around Kenny Hill uh, was that his he never threw the ball downfield. The frustration with the play calling was that we never opened up the playbook all the way. And yet... TCU still managed to go eleven and two or eleven and three or whatever it was in twenty seventeen under Kenny Hill. Yeah. So I wonder 
you know, I wonder if if the player offsets the play calling just a little bit, but at the same time, I don't know of any quarterback who could exist in the current play calling situation and thrive. <sighs> wow. And I think I just argued both sides of the coin there, yeah, but well, whatever. I mean, at, at this point, I, I just it's I, I think that we're justified in just feeling lost and confused and like we are taking a lazy river to nowhere uh that is that is the feeling that i have about this tcu football season it will float where it floats it will take us where it takes us uh at the end of the day there there's going to be something enjoyable about it there'll be a win or two we can celebrate uh but we're just kind of floating around in circles for 2019 and hoping for the best it's true but let's not stay in that zone for the entirety of this podcast because <laughs> otherwise everyone will drop out. So let's take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk about what almost happened on Saturday night and look forward to TCU's game this upcoming weekend. <clears throat> All right, we are back. This is the Frogs War Podcast. I am Jamie Plunkett. She is Melissa Trebowasser. And... We're going to take a, a moment to not talk about anything TCU football related and instead talk about what almost happened in Austin on Saturday night because, Melissa, we almost witnessed actual college football history. Again. Again. Because this would have been Kansas's – and I've got, to, I've got to do some research really quick. I didn't pull this up in time. I'm fairly certain that would have been Kansas's first win – in Austin in like 50 years or something like that. Oh yeah, because they I'm beat them. They beat them in Lawrence the last time. That's correct. Yeah. Um, okay, so here, while you look this up, here's a question. Okay. As far as TCU's theoretical chances for this weekend, where they are a two and a half point favorite last I checked. Um, That's weird. Is it better or worse that Texas pulled out that win? It's it's better, better, right? Like if they lose that game, like that's we bad get, for we us. We get rage beaten by a hundred. Yeah. On Saturday, if Kansas wins that game. Okay, so all time, Kansas is three and sixteen against Texas. They let's see, they won obviously in twenty sixteen. Prior to that, they won. Their last win was, hold up, uh, in 1938 in Lawrence, Kansas, wow. 19 to 18. So all three of their wins against Texas have been in Lawrence. That would have been the first time in the history of Kansas football that they won a game in Austin, Texas. And for those of you who didn't see the game, Texas won 50 to 48. Kansas took a 48-47 to lead with a minute and 11 seconds left in the fourth quarter. Thanks to some really gutsy play by Carter Stanley. Uh, they went for two after they scored a touchdown to get down 47-46 to and made it. Um, Texas suffered more injuries on defense, especially in that secondary, and they are super, super beaten up now, which is something that we'll get into a little bit more here in just a few minutes. But Texas, with a minute and seven, uh, 11 seconds left, marched down the field, and Dicker, the kicker, made like a 36-yard field goal as time expired for Texas to avoid the hilarious and historic upset. 
And there was also and a was two full... point. There was a a, uh, a a two point defensive score, too, on a uh, yes. on a uh, a blocked yeah, extra point block for extra Kansas. Point. Yeah, right. Texas blocked an extra point and took that back to the house. And that would have at that point, if Kansas had made the extra point, it would have tied the game at thirty one. But instead, Texas took a thirty three to thirty lead, ends up winning the game by two points. Uh, that was another significant moment in that game. But Melissa, that was the first game uh, for Kansas's offensive coordinator uh, to call the plays. And so I think it's really interesting. Uh, his name, oh, hang on. I'm floundering, it's fine. Brent Deerman, the Kansas offensive coordinator. Um, that was his first game calling uh, the offense. First game calling the plays. And he did something that I thought was very impressive. Is he put his quarterback in a position to succeed. Because here's what I saw from Carter Stanley on Saturday night against Texas. I saw a quarterback who made smart decisions with the football. Still pushed it downfield though. He made significant number of intermediate passes. Uh, he trusted his offensive line. He ran when necessary. He had a couple of very big runs. Carter Stanley is not the most mobile guy on the planet, but he looked like a legitimate dual threat quarterback against Texas. Um, and I think a lot of that was is because he knew that the coaches had confidence in him. They told him and they gave him the responsibility of running the entire offense. And his coach put him in positions to succeed. You know? This is uh, weird. It, it's a, and it's crazy how much of a different quarterback Stanley looked against Texas than he did against TCU, was that, four weeks ago, when they couldn't do anything on offense. And we know now, because we have a little bit more data, that TCU's defense isn't really that good this year. Uh, and so maybe it wasn't just that TCU's defense shut them down completely. Thank God for the second straight year, a team has not done the smart thing until after they played TCU. Brock Purdy didn't play against the Frogs last October, and Kansas didn't put in a real play caller that trusted a quarterback until after they came to Fort Worth. So thank you, Matt Campbell and Les Miles, for gifting TCU a win in each of the last three seasons. Appreciate you. Here's a question for you. If TCU lost to Kansas two years in a row, would Cumbie uh, still be the offensive coordinator right now? If TCU had lost this year to Kansas, I don't would think... Would Sonny have already been fired? I don't think Gary Patterson would fire someone midseason. That's Do just you not... think Gary Patterson would legitimately be on the hot seat if TCU lost to Kansas two years in a row? No. I, I remain convinced that the only person that can put Gary Patterson on the hot seat is Gary Patterson. I don't see any and way Jeremiah Donati, you know, what a two two years into this job is either gutty enough or brash enough or empowered enough to fire Gary Patterson. I mean think about Is that, that a problem? Um, okay. Is that problematic when the head coach is the most powerful person in the athletic department? Okay, I'm going to go on a mini, a mini little th- 
theory of my head here. So I, and I talked this out with, okay. with the Kansas State people on their podcast last week because they found themselves in a similar situation to what TCU is embarking upon. You have a head coach who has basically built the program from the ground up. And anything good that has come to your football team in the recent enough future to matter has come because of the head coach of this program, Gary Patterson at TCU, Bill Snyder at Kansas State. There comes a point where you start to look ahead and think, hmm, this guy isn't going to be here forever. He's done some really, really mm-hmm. great things, but we can start to see signs of the beginning of the end, um, whether it's a team not being successful, whether it's um, maybe uh, kids today are very, very different, which is something I believe. It's not the message isn't being received, or maybe you've just been somewhere too long to where you can't see the forest for the trees because you're so embedded in your purple colored glasses or whatever else. And so, uh, you how do you get rid of someone who has done any of the good things that have come to your program versus how do you say, hey, the best thing for us is to start looking somewhere else? Now, the thing that I will say that gives me hope is that. Gary Patterson has always said, and I fully believe him, that when he believes he's no longer the best coach for TCU football, he will no longer be the coach for TCU football. This is not a Bill Snyder situation where he's going to hang on and make sure that and try to do everything he can do to get his son to be his successor. Patterson, when he feels like he can walk away and leave TCU in a good position, I do believe he'll walk away. He has other things he wants to do with his life. And so um, I, I think that we owe him so much that I would rather him hang on a year or two too long than to be the era, part of the era that ran him off too soon. Um, where is TCU without Gary Patterson? You know, I, uh, we're still, still in the whack. The whack. So yeah. I, I, look, if, if this means that we're going to suffer <clears throat> through a couple of difficult seasons as he figures out a succession plan and, and, and starts to put a foundation down for what life after him looks like, I would much rather do that then see us fire him and watch it be a disaster coming in. Because here's the other thing you got to think about. How many guys on that staff right now are guys you'd want to keep that are loyal to Gary Patterson? There's quite a few. You know, I, I would really like to keep Zarnell Fitch on the next staff. I'd really be interested in bringing back Justin Fuente as an offensive coordinator or potentially a coach in waiting. There are a lot of guys that are going to be loyal to him that, that he's going to have that, that are going to make that decision based on how he's treated. And he is the one thing that you can say about Patterson, he's a, I don't know if I want to say the word that I want to use to, on this podcast, not a really easy guy to work for, but he is loyal. He takes care of his people. He fights for raises. He doesn't fire guys mid-season. You can, you can doubt him for maybe holding on to guys too long, but he has always looked out for more than just himself. And he has always looked out for the TCU community. And the reason that TCU has become Fort Worth's team is because of Gary Patterson, and his investment I would much rather him stay too long than get run off too soon. And I know that means that there's going to be probably more seasons like this year. And and I'm just having to learn to be okay with that. If he wants to stay till the end of his contract, and, and it means that TC's a 500 team for the next five years, I would rather do that than watch him get fired or get pushed out of the door at TCU right now. I totally agree with that. And you mentioned very briefly his legacy and asked the question, where would we be without him? I don't know that anyone who claims to be an actual TCU fan, whether they went to the university or not, would allow two bad seasons, of which 
they still won a bowl game last year, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know that this is any kind of tarnish on his legacy. I don't think this is any... I don't think we're reaching those kind of levels of conversation where we have to question, like, is Patterson still up to the job? Is he still... You know, right? Like, we're not there. Yeah. We're definitely not there. We're in the middle of a 500 season right now. Things look kind of bleak for 2019. But then you can turn the page and you can look at 2020 and say, gosh, there's still so much talent. We might have a new offensive coordinator... Like, things could turn up pretty quickly. And so if this is a situation where he's starting to really kind of figure out what's good for TCU after him, then that's fine. Do I think that we're quite there yet? No, I don't. Because I see a guy in Gary Patterson who says that he might... He doesn't want to coach forever. He he says that he... Uh, has other interests that he wants to embark upon at some point in his life. And yet, we know his work ethic when it comes to coaching football. The guy is up at the crack of dawn every day. He's not home until after late, late, late at night every night. He's always studying film. He's pushing his guys to be the best on the practice field. He's doing everything that he can to get his coaches and his kids prepared. And I think he's still got a, a very full tank for this game. I think he's got a very full tank for TCU. I think he's frustrated as hell right now, and he should be, because his team isn't living up to his expectations, and he's got a lot invested in that. Um, Do I think that at some point Gary Patterson won't be the head coach of TCU? Obviously, nobody coaches forever because people eventually, at the very least, die. (laughs) Wow, it took a dark turn, (laughs) JB. I've I have bourbon. It's fine, but but what I do know is that in the midst of a frustrating time, which TCU is very much in, we can also do this thing where we forget that things are cyclical, and we forget that just two seasons ago this was an eleven-win top five team at the end of the season. That was 2017. The end of 2017, this was a team ranked in the top 10. You know? There's there's really... And and every fan base is really good at overblowing um, failure and overblowing unmet expectations. TCU is not um, uh, immune to that, as we're witnessing currently on (laughs) frogswar.com. But... But I think I just I just don't think we're at that point yet where we have to have those conversations about Patterson's energy for the game. I think we're at the point where we can really maybe start to brainstorm who the next offensive coordinator is. And yeah, it could be Justin Fuente. That would be a really cool pick. I don't know that homecomings always work very well. Um, and you know he's he's definitely starting to wear out his welcome though at, at Virginia Tech. But there's another name too. Billy Napier down at Louisiana, the Raging Cajuns, Mm. that guy knows how to call an offense. That guy knows how to put an offense together. And, you know, Parker uh, and I were having a conversation uh, earlier this week about, you know, if you could get someone in as a head coach in waiting, would you go and get a Fuente or would you go and get someone who you think really could, is young and exciting and knows. Uh, knows one side of the football incredibly well, and you, you know Billy Napier checks some of those boxes too. Um, but yeah, I just don't. I just don't think that 
we're at that point yet though to start really brainstorming life after Patterson. I think we're totally in a space where we can start brainstorming who the next offensive coordinator will be though. Okay, here, and here's I'm a, happy to start doing that. Here's a name. I don't know if he would do this, but Rhett Lashley sure looks yeah, Nick Saban. Uh, Rhett Lashley sure looks good at SMU. And I, I don't know that he would leave SMU to come to TCU. I don't know that it's a better job for him right now. But certainly Well that's a better job. Like it that's we're not at the we're we're TCU is a better job than SMU. Next it's a big twelve job. It's a power five job. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think that Rhett Lashley, I mean Shane Buchel won't be there next year. Yeah. James Prochet won't no, be no. there next year. No, Buchel's got two years, doesn't he? He's a two year guy. I thought he was a grad. I thought he was a grad. I think transfer. he's a two year grad transfer though. Well, they still won't have James Prochet next year. I don't yeah. think they'll have Robert Robertson or whatever Reggie Robertson Reggie, yeah. next year. You know, they. I just TCU is still a better job than SMU. One one season of, of SMU having a better better record doesn't change that. True. Just like one like was is Central Florida a better job than TCU because they won a fake national championship two years ago? Never. Yeah, so SMU's not a better job than TCU. Does that mean that Rhett Lashley automatically would take this job? No. But I don't think he would immediately write it off. Yeah. It's, a, it's, an, inter- it's an interesting thought. It's not, you don't have to move. You know, be good. Yeah, just commute a little further. Yeah. Here's the thing, really, frankly. Here's the thing that's been eating at my soul about head coaches lately. is It is well documented that I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. Mm. And Urban Meyer earlier this week was posed the question, and this was in the context of Lincoln Riley possibly ever becoming the head coach of, of the Cowboys, saying, you know, did he think that Lincoln would go <clears throat> to Dallas? And he says, well, I've never talked to him about it. I don't know. But, you know, if you're looking to go to the NFL, why would you not li- at least listen to the Cowboys job? He's like, if I got asked to be the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys, you know, I would have to stop and think about it. And then they said, hey, Urban, have you been asked? He said, no. They said, so you would consider it. And he said, I would have to sit with it for a few days. So in the back of my mind right now, Melissa, all I can think about is Dallas Cowboys head coach Urban Meyer, yeah. and I want to kill myself. Uh, so yeah. frankly, anything that happens with the coaching situation at CCU is like very mundane compared to that. Oh, yes. I, I'm very much not really in on the Cowboys, depending on the day of the week. I would be so easily out if they hired Urban Meyer. Like that's that's a whole too, but, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, but they just beat the Eagles on Sunday night, yeah. so that Garrett's Garrett's job is safe for, for now. today. Hey, if they don't, if yeah. they aren't within a touchdown to go into the Super Bowl with about four minutes left to go in the NFC Championship game, he's getting fired no matter what. Put that in writing. You're gonna do a mohawk like a local. Uh, radio personality did. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if I'll You're go do the Jub Mohawk. That Jub far, Hawk. but okay, I'm sure we can put something down. Well, back to TCU though, and they do well. Actually, let's do this. Let's take another break, Melissa, and we'll continue this lament on the other side of the break as we look forward to TCU Texas on Saturday. All right, we're back, Melissa. 
TCU is three and three. They host the Texas Longhorns on Saturday at two thirty on Fox National Game. First things first, before we even get into gameplay, do you think the fans show up? Yeah, um, I, but I'm not going to specify what percentage of them are wearing burnt orange. Um, I think it'll be a sellout. The weather's supposed to be absolutely perfect. Beautiful day in Fort Worth. Um, I, I think that you know we see this every year, even when TCU has been. Clearly the superior team. Um, people show up for that game. The TCU fans show up. Texas fans show up. It's it's a big draw. Um, and when the weather's nice in an afternoon game, I don't see any reason that that thing isn't packed about five minutes into the first quarter. Now, will it look like that after halftime? It could be a completely different scenario. But um, I, I think it'll be a great atmosphere to start things off. It's also homecoming, too. So I fully expect a killer crowd when when right shortly after kickoff occurs for sure. I sure hope so. I sure hope so. I you know, I I I think it's worth going to just to support your school, good or bad. Yeah. Um. But I worry about the fickleness of TCU fans. And, you know, it's hard to get them in the stadium when the team is winning 10 games a season. It's It, it might it might feel like a Texas home game on Saturday is my concern. I, I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility, but I think it being homecoming helps keep TCU fans buying the tickets, um, at least initially. I mean, it's been a very, very hot ticket. I, and by hot ticket, I mean every single person I've known that's ever even said the word CC or Texas has asked me to help find them tickets for this weekend. Because, you know, ask on the most, you know, probably the biggest drawing game of the season. That's totally fine. I can I can help with that. But whatever. Right. Beside the point. But yeah, no. They I, didn't, they, you mean they didn't call you when we were playing Pine Bluff? No, no, I did not get those calls. Um, hmm. But, you know, I think... That being said, um, I think it'll be a, a really good atmosphere. I, I think people are, are still, people may have given up on this TCU season, but without there being the excuse of terrible weather or anything else, I think that we'll at least get a good start to things. Uh, like I said, I don't expect them to stay that way. If, if it's not a close game early, or even if it is, we've shown that TCU fans don't care about the new in-and-out policy. They'll just go out and stay out, no matter what the score or situation is. So... Um, by the yeah. third quarter, if this is a blowout, it could definitely feel a lot like the SMU game did and the fact that the opposing fan base is considerably louder than the people in purple. Yeah, I think so. Uh, but really, that will be determined by <clears throat> what's happening on the field. And I honest to God think that TCU has... I, I don't know, maybe I'm just a lunatic, but I do think that TCU has a good shot at being competitive in this football game because realistically they've only not been competitive in one football game this year and that was Iowa State. Yeah. And second of all, Texas has some significant injuries, especially in the secondary, that uh, give me pause when it comes to how good Texas's defense actually will be on Saturday because um, they have uh, lost a couple of guys. First of all, uh, they lost here. I'm looking up. Uh, as this is as of today. So Caden Stearns, defensive back, he's one of the best safeties in the Big Twelve, 
is out for Saturday. Uh, you have um, Chris Brown, who broke his forearm and is out until November. You have Jeffrey McCullough, a linebacker who is out indefinitely. You've got Josh Thompson, another defensive back, who broke his foot and is out for eight to ten weeks. You've got Marcus Tillman, who sprained his MCL and is out for the season. You've got uh, a couple of other guys, too, that are down for the count. DeGabriel Floyd, Rod, Rob Cummins, they lose some depth along, depth along the defensive line with Cummins out. Um, there are some significant injuries on the defensive side of the ball for the University of Texas. Caden Stearns probably being the biggest. Um, that give you maybe a little bit of hope if you're TCU's offense, knowing that some of these guys that are coming in are young and a little inexperienced, and maybe there's something to take advantage of. You know, we've seen in spurts the Doug and Rager connection really work. Maybe this is the week that it finally clicks fully. Well, and that, that's going to be the, you know, first and foremost, I do want to say the Texas defense wasn't very good to begin with. They're really, really struggling without those players. Um, there's a reason that Kansas put up 48 points on them. It's still Kansas, new play caller or not. Um, but the, the what concerns me is that we've seen vulnerabilities in opposing defenses all season long and have yet to see the Frogs consistently being able to take advantage of that. And when you talk about a secondary that's struggling – then you're looking at that advantage lying, of course, to the passing game, which has been far and away the biggest weak spot of the TCU offense. Um, where it could mm-hmm. really pay dividends is if the, uh, the, the TC decides to start with the run and stick with the run and the running backs, if Darius Anderson and Shewo can get to the second level defensively, uh, they can certainly make some guys miss with inexperienced linebackers and safeties to where they could turn you know, maybe six, seven-yard gains into 20, 25-yard gains by uh, taking advantage of the inexperience and, and maybe some poor tackling technique uh, with the second and third-level defender. So, it, I mean, could TCU put up 25, 28, 30 points on this Texas defense? Because even with, um, you know, the, the injury, that, that offense is still going to score. And the TC defense has yeah. shown how vulnerable they are to a running quarterback and how vulnerable they can be to big plays as well. And Sam Ellinger is a machine when it comes to being able to move the football up and down the field using his arm and his legs. So I don't think mm-hmm. you're going to beat Texas by scoring 18, 20 points. I think they're going to have to cross close to that 30-point threshold. And, and I, I mean, I don't feel good about that happening even against a banged-up uh, Texas defense right now. Um, Am I am I wrong? Should I have more hope than that? Uh, I don't. I, I I mean, it's certainly a tempered expectation that you have, and I don't think that's unreasonable considering what we've seen from TCU this year. But here here's some numbers for you, and they're not going to be like Parker stats award level numbers. But Texas is eighth in the Big Twelve in scoring defense. They're giving up almost thirty one points a game to opposing offenses. They're um, dead last. In passing defense, they're giving up 310 passing yards a game. Uh, they're ninth in the Big 12 in total defense. They're giving up four, pretty much right at 470 yards a game. They are eighth in passing defense efficiency, with only West Virginia and Oklahoma State worse. They are um, moderately okay 
against the run, giving up about 160 yards a game. So this is a defense that is, like you said, isn't very good, uh, is susceptible to the pass, um, and just maybe, maybe this is the game where it all clicks. I don't know. Maybe this is the game where Patterson looks at Cumbie and says, just cut it loose. But uh, It's Texas, after all. But Kansas. But at the same time. What do you, what, I was going to say, Kansas but Kansas what? State was far and away the worst rushing defense in the Big 12. And had every, and was poor, or was strong against the pass, which should have played right into TCU's hands. And they were able to put up 17 points. You know, like like that's it's true. And and TCU's got to be near the bottom of every Big Twelve category when it comes to offensive efficiency. I believe they're dead last right now when it comes to passing efficiency, or at least they were close to it going into the weekend. So uh, you would they think they are dead last. Yes. Yeah. So you would think, okay, Texas isn't very good, but when when bad offense meets bad defense, I still have more confidence that bad defense is going to win. So yeah. I, unless. You know, like I think you're right to, to say, okay, we can hold out hope that maybe this is the week it all clicks, but we're going to have to see something very dramatically different than anything we've seen to this point. And it's hard to foresee that happening unless there's been a real come to Jesus meeting in that, co- that coach's room where they've just said, all right, F it, we're going for it. Let's have some fun. Do what, do what you think is best. I'm going to stay out of your way. And I just don't know that, that Gary Pashton is the type of guy that can do that. I think he is. You know, I think we've seen uh, Gary Patterson eventually, maybe too late at each at each juncture, but make the hard decisions that were to the benefit of TCU football. Uh, you know, when Fuente left, we had Anderson and Burns calling an offense that was miserable, um, and it got to the point where he finally, even though he was fiercely loyal to those two guys, make a change. And bring in Meacham and Cumby. I think we're and he was frustrated beyond belief with the product that was being on the put on the field, and that led to that change. I don't know that we're all the way to an overhaul yet. Maybe at the end of the season we will be. I think if things don't get better, we will be. But maybe this is that point where he sh- he starts to kind of inch in that direction and say, "Show me something. You've got the full reins. We're taking off the governor." go and do it um and by the way yeah kansas state was a really bad rushing defense and tc ran for 230 rushing yards on saturday the inconsistencies in the passing game came from no protection along the offensive line a true freshman who missed on a couple of passes and some drops you know Tavalence hunt had multiple drops in that game rager had a drop in that game or the stat line looks a little bit different yeah. But that's been the story all season, though, is, you know, that goes back to what we were talking about earlier with excuses, is that, you know, we said, oh, man, you know, Duggan just missed, or, man, there have been these drops, but we've been saying that now for six games, time and time again. Everything could be different if this team was playing a lot better than they are, and, and that's what, like, I, 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 I'm trying to be optimistic in this sense, as I keep waiting for them to turn the page, but... Like, at some point, maybe that page just isn't turning in 2019. And I don't want to start thinking, man, there's all these reasons that TCU should be successful on Saturday and then not seeing any of them come to fruition week after week. It feels, you know, kind of just like running your head into a brick wall to a degree. 
So what would your what would your game plan be then for TCU going into Saturday? I mean, I'm gonna try to to, and I know I'm gonna get skewered for this from all the established run people. But to me, your best chance for success is to get the ball in Darius Anderson's hands as early and as often as possible. Um, when the Frogs were successful in Kansas State, they ran the ball down the Cats' throat. And, and I want to open up the passing game. I, I really do. I would love to see it be successful. I think it would change the Frogs' fortunes. But I just don't see anything that's led me to believe that this the passing attack is improving week to week. So if you're going to tell me that we're going to call a different style of game, that we're going to run more intermediate routes, that we're going to we're going to give Max something between negative three yards and 30 yards uh, on, on a route tree, then sure, maybe that'd be the case. But I want to get the ball in Darius Anderson's hands, and I want to force feed Jalen Rager. Uh, that pass he, he made on the sideline to Rager, that Rager just went out and mossed the guy and stole an interception out of his hands. That just reminded me, oh, yeah, this is one of the best wide receivers in college football. Throw him the stinking ball. Throw it into double coverage. Throw it into triple coverage. Throw dangerous passes. Throw an interception trying to force feed regular the ball. I'm completely and totally fine with that. I think that you have to do what works, and that's running Darius Anderson, running Max Duggan, using Shawo to wear down a, a team in the third and fourth quarter, and then force feeding the ball to Jalen Rager. And also getting back to utilizing the tight ends, I would love to see some of those stick routes in the middle of the field as safety valves, kind of the Jason Witten routes. Like even watching the Cowboys game Sunday night and seeing just that safety valve of having a tight end or having a halfback that splits out that's just kind of in the I'm here if you need anything off of play action, um, mm-hmm. I think could be super, super effective. And so that's what I would love to see. Um, keep it simple, open it up, you know, use some play action when it warrants itself. But but at the end of the day, I want I want Darius Anderson to have 22 touches. I want Shawo to have at least 12 to 14. And I want Max to run on maybe four or five designed runs and, and probably take off eight times in total. And Jalen Rager to have at least 10 targets. I mean, I think that's how you beat Texas. But I don't think that's going to be what happens. I agree with you to an extent. I... I am an eternal and a hopelessly optimistic person. Um, So I I have to believe that things will get better. I have to believe that eventually the flaws in something will inspire people to rise above and make uh, the changes necessary to, to overcome some of those, those faults. Um, and so, and you know, I said maybe last week. I said last week, maybe maybe this is the week that it happens. I'm going to say it again. Maybe this is the week when it happens, when things start to click for Duggan, when the offense finally opens up, and we throw the ball. Uh, maybe that means he makes mistakes. Maybe it doesn't. Um, maybe he gets to throw it 50 times and he still doesn't throw an interception. And then then it's really something to talk about. You know, uh, maybe our linebackers finally figure out that a running back doesn't always take the ball just because a quarter quarterback reaches it out and extends it in his direction. Um, maybe all of those things finally click for this team. And if it does, I think it'll be a really cool thing to see when TCU hosts Texas on national television and knocks them off while they're a top 15 team. Um, First of all, they are not Sam a Ellinger, top 15 team, but okay. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. They've got the number, they've got a little tiny number 15 right next to their name. Um, and the, we all know that rankings are always flawless and um, beyond question. Um, but do I think it's going to happen? Do I do I like 
Am I confident that it's going to happen? No. Do I hold out hope that it will happen? Absolutely. Because uh, I am ready to get hurt again, in the famous words and immortal, immortal words of Michael Scott. No <laughs> doubt about it. I'm ready to get hurt again. Aren't we all? Um, let's make some picks, though, Melissa, as we kind of wrap up this show for this week. Let's get into the Big 12 games. Texas Tech travels to Lawrence to play the Kansas Jayhawks. Coming off of that close close loss in Austin, does Kansas get their first Big 12 win of the season? Yes. Give me the Jayhawks. Nice. I think Jet Duffy is good enough to beat Kansas. I think it's kind of a letdown game for Kansas after coming so close in Austin. I think Texas Tech wins that game. Iowa State ranked 5-2, and two, ranked Iowa State at number 23, hosts Oklahoma State, who held a fourth quarter lead against the Baylor Bears and then just watched everything kind of unravel in the last 13, 14 minutes of that football game. Um, Oklahoma State travels to Iowa State. Who wins that football game? Uh, Iowa State, count me among them who believe they have figured it out. You're welcome, Cyclone fans, for getting you guys rolling. Uh, I could potentially see a path for them winning every game not against Oklahoma the rest of the season. Um, I think they win uh, easily against Oklahoma State, and they are going to knock Texas out of the Big 12 championship in November as well. I like it. Iowa State is a 10.5-point favorite in that game, so that's something to keep an eye on, too, as the Cyclones offense keeps on rolling. Um, Another game in the state of Kansas for the Big 12 as Oklahoma travels to Kansas State. Oklahoma is favored by 24 points over the Wildcats. Uh, You mentioned it earlier, Kansas State is the worst passing defense in the Big 12. Oklahoma... Uh, has CeeDee Lamb, and that's going to be problematic probably for the Wildcats. Good teams win, great teams cover. Oklahoma's going to cover Saturday. Oh my goodness. Is it weird to you, by the way, that Oklahoma is sitting there at 7-0 and and all of this other shuffling has happened in the in the top five, top seven in the rankings, and OU's just kind of consistently been fifth? I mean, it feels about right. Let the SEC cannibalize itself, let people decide one week they're tired of Clemson and another that they're not. Um, I, I think the, the Sooners are in a pole position to, to cruise to 12-0 and 0 and, uh, and, and get one of those final four spots and then completely and totally disappoint on the big stage. I mean, their, their defense has a heartbeat this year, though. It's not a big heartbeat, but it's a heartbeat. Yeah. And if their defense had a heartbeat, either of the last two seasons, things might have turned out differently for them. I still don't think they're better than any of the other three teams they would face in a four-team playoff. But I also, part of my issue is I don't think they've been tested by a competent defense yet this year either. So that's, that's really going to be, what what does a good defense do? Because they're going to get fat on these. I mean, the Big 12 defenses aren't great this year. TCU's still leading in a lot of categories, but... I don't think anyone that's watched them has said, man, this is an elite Gary Patterson defense. Um, and then I think Iowa State is and Baylor are like the other two that, that look like they're giving teams problems. But do you really think either of them is, is anywhere near an elite defense? Um, if you compare no. them to what good defenses do well, no, not at all. So this is one of those years that's going to prove the Big 12 can't play any defense. The difference is, is you don't have that many super elite quarterbacks that are putting up big numbers so that it doesn't look as bad as it usually does. That's true. Does Jalen Hurts win the Heisman, though, this year? No. 
Maybe. Who do you think does? I, I was I was all aboard the Tua train, um, but his entry, he's going to miss at least one game. If he's back for LSU and, and uh, Alabama beats uh, the Tigers, I think that that pretty much writes his Heisman campaign. Otherwise, the guy that really uh, is, is quietly making a lot of noise is Justin Fields. His stats are going to be probably better than, than Hurts, and the Big Ten is, is even weaker, in my opinion, than the Big 12 is this year. So I think Fields, uh, Fields has a really, really clear path, and he's one of those guys that no one's talking about, which is a really good thing to be a top four or five guy that no one's really talking about that much because he can just quietly put up numbers, have a huge moment against a Michigan or, or somebody like that, and and, uh, and and write his ticket to New York. Who? Last question. Who do you think is the best team in college football right now? Oh, that's a great question. Um, Can I give you my answer? Yes. LSU. I knew you were going to say that. Uh, I know you did, but here's their resume so far this year. They went to Austin and beat Texas. They've beaten Florida. They manhandled Mississippi State. And, not the yeah, okay, all three of those wins maybe don't sound terribly impressive, but you compare that schedule to the likes of Alabama's undefeated schedule, Oklahoma's undefeated schedule, Ohio State's undefeated schedule, Clemson's undefeated schedule, and it is far and away the best they manhandled everybody that they've played. They finally have an offense. Joe Burrow doesn't even need pants to be good at quarterback. Huh. Um, they, they're, they're the best team in college football right now, and I don't even think that it's that close. I, I will say this. I have zero argument that they have the best resume in college football. I still don't know that I believe they're the best team. I, I think they're the best team. I, I don't. I, We're going to see, though. Yeah. We're going to see on Saturday, they Auburn's coming to Death Valley, number nine Auburn against number two LSU. That'll be a really good test for the Tigers to see if they can stand up to the pressure. They've already got technically two top ten wins on their resume this year with Texas and Florida. Um, Auburn is terrible. Because the Longhorns were ranked number nine. Auburn is bad. You think Auburn is terrible? I think Auburn is bad. I think Auburn is bad. I don't think Florida is very good. I think LSU is very good. I think Alabama would be elite if it wasn't for the amount of injuries they have on the defensive side of the ball, but that they're still Alabama. They're the best coach team in college football by a mile and a half. I don't think Ohio State has played anybody, but at the same token, they look like a freaking video game right now. So I would love – I think Clemson's going to get in by default. They're not as bad as FSU was a few years ago when they got in by being undefeated in a crappy ACC. But Clemson is definitely in danger of getting knocked out in the first round of the playoffs, but they're going to make it because we still know they're going to play their best football in November because they have every year that they've been good under Dabo. Uh, I fully expect uh, to get that Clemson-Alabama round one matchup for Alabama to – uh, to, to dominate that game and get the revenge for Ohio State to knock off Oklahoma in an interesting game. And then that Ohio State-Alabama game could be really, really good. Because I do think that Alabama is going to beat LSU because I just don't think that LSU is going to be as well-prepared as Alabama is in a game that's really going to be a coin flip game. And I don't, I don't fully believe in Joe Burrow yet. And that's probably my personal thing. I probably need to watch him more, but I just don't fully believe in him until he proves me wrong. And he very well may. If, they, if LSU beats Alabama, then I think they're your national champion. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not going to make that prediction yet. I do think they're the best team in college football, though. And I think they beat Auburn. I think they cover. They're 11.5-point favorite over Auburn. So I, give me LSU. But you want to talk about some tests this week for some good teams. You know, LSU is hosting Auburn. And Ohio State is hosting Wisconsin. Wisconsin just dropped a horrible game to Illinois. But there's no doubt that they have one of the best running backs in all of college football in uh, Jonathan Taylor. The guy has, he's 43 yards away from 1,000 yards rushing already this year. He's got 15 rushing touchdowns already this year. Um, but like you said, Ohio State's putting up video game numbers. They're two-touchdown favorite in the shoe against Wisconsin. Does Ohio State win, and do they cover? Oh, yeah. The, Wisconsin, all they did was prove themselves to be overrated earlier than normal. Like, I think most people saw them going to the Big Ten Championship and then getting blown out by 40 points by Ohio State. Um, but but clearly, this is this is a team that has a lot of strength. Any defense is going to look elite against Big Ten competition for the most part. Jonathan Taylor is one of the best players in college football. But the rest of that offense is suspect at best. And, and I mean, Illinois just really took it to the Badgers on Saturday. So it was a close game. Came down to the last-second field goal. But... But I think that exposed more of who the Badgers are than, than Illinois, you know, getting up for a big game and getting a win. So I don't think Ohio State's going to have any problems with Wisconsin this weekend. I don't know. Wisconsin has four shutouts on their ledger this year. Against two. I wonder, I, I wonder <laughs> if that's just, I wonder if that's just a, 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 rough, a, a rough day. You know, good teams have bad days sometimes. They beat Michigan State thirty-eight to nothing. Yeah, and, and that's, yeah, that's maybe not a like a right home to your mother victory, but thirty-eight to nothing over a conference opponent is it? That's like a, a normal win for TCU over Kansas. Yeah, and and that like look that right? that is and some impressive stuff, but they beat Michigan by three touchdowns. Yeah, I, you know, Mich- Michigan's bad. They, Mich- every team can't be bad, Melissa. <laughs> I, Every team can't be I bad. would argue that they are this year. Like this is Every football team is bad this year. Every team is bad. Like this is one of the most most interesting years we've had in college football and that you you look and the the cream is really really good but like does anyone watch number 15 Texas and think wow this is a really complete football team or a Michigan's team that that stays ranked because they're Michigan? Like if they were Baylor, they would have been long gone, right? I mean, like that that's mm-hmm. the thing is that that I think that we're in one of those years where the name on your jersey matters so much more than what's happening on the field because there just there are not 25 teams that I look at and be like any of these 25 would be capable of competing with any of these top 10 teams. Like it just it feels like the bottom half of the rankings are super super weak. Um I, I just like any any game that I've watched this season just I have not walked away thinking, man, there's there's some super elite programs here this year. I mean, is Minnesota good? They're undefeated, right? Maybe. Mm-hmm. How how good is Baylor? How good is SMU? Like the teams that are undefeated don't exactly strike fear in the hearts of of top five programs. But I, I guess they could still beat anybody on any given Saturday. And and I just I'm not a big believer in. I think Michigan is is not a good football team. They are so flawed. I think Wisconsin is super duper flawed. I, I think that that so much of the Big Ten just kind of looks like a, a, a crapshoot most of the weekend. But I don't know. Maybe every team is bad, and I've, I'm just onto something uh, quite quite the prediction. But I don't know anything anyway, so it's fine. It's true. 
you don't know anything, but I still want you to tell me who wins if uh, you know, Michigan is hosting Notre Dame this this Saturday. Notre Dame. And yeah. you think Notre Dame yeah, wins? I, Michigan is favored by a point. That's hilarious. No, I think Notre Dame is a better football team. Um, Ian Book is not an elite quarterback, but he's a he's a gamer. You know, he's he's the kind of guy that that for the most part seems to make big plays when they're needed. Um, I, I think Michigan, or Notre Dame's defense is, is better than Michigan's defense, and I think Notre Dame's offense is probably a little bit more efficient than Michigan's offense. So I, I expect the Irish to, to hang around the fringes and, and get a New York New Year's Six Bowl and then probably lose to a team that um, is significantly better than them but, but doesn't appear so on paper. Some other interesting games around the country on Saturday. Uh, Penn State goes to Michigan State. That's kind of been their bugaboo game every season the last few. Uh, Boston College travels to Clemson for their annual thumping. Um, very quietly, Utah has put together a very good season. They're number 12 in the country right now. They're 6-1. and one. They host Cal on Saturday looking to get to 7-1 and one and maybe breaking into the top 10 if a few other games go their way. And you've got Washington State, Oregon, which has been, if nothing else, super entertaining mm-hmm. over the last few seasons. So it's a really good Saturday for college football. Um, but, Melissa, we haven't done the most important pick yet. What's your prediction I do for think TCU, SMU Texas? wins this. Oh, oh sorry. Uh, most important pick. Uh, oh, my. Okay. <laughs> uh I just I really want to believe that that TCU is going to rally together and rise up against all of the haters and the doubters, myself included, and go out and and edge Texas and get a win that gives everybody hope and a false sense of security for the rest of the season. Um, but that's not going to happen. I I think Sam Ellinger is is going to come out with a vengeance. I think that almost losing to Kansas is probably the wake up call that the Longhorns needed to shake them back into reality after their heartbreaker to Oklahoma in the Red River rivalry, and ergo, I think that they put it on TCU a little bit, uh, 38 to 17 Longhorns, and I feel disgusting saying that. <sighs> Rough. I know I said that I'm an eternal optimist. Uh, Texas 45. TCU twenty four. Oh wow, wow. We we are hurting. It's rough times for the Frogs War podcast, folks. It is. It is. It is it's a it's sad, tough. Sad, sad day. Um, we will we will overcome these moments. Um, and hey, I would be thrilled to be proven wrong. Oh please, yeah, Saturday. absolutely. I, I want to be proven wrong, and I want Gary Patterson to look us both in the eye. Actually, no, that's scary. Um, and just say, <laughs> hey, you idiots from Frogs War. You're idiots. It will be the most delicious crust. Yeah, for sure. Uh, hey, one other thing I feel like we should mention going, or two other things we mm-hmm. should mention going on this weekend. Um, it's homecoming week. There's a lot of home festivities going on. Friday night uh, at Shulmire Arena after the Hunter Hayes concert uh, in the quad yes. for homecoming. From 8.30 to 10, uh, there will be a, a Sholly Live uh, festival, which will not include Snoop Dogg strippers or Money Guns, but will include Shaquille uh-huh. O'Neal. Um, a dunk contest, three-point shooting contest, and some other fun things. So it's a free event for fans. Um, they're going to be lighting up uh, Amon G. Carter and Schulmeyer with a bunch of purple lights and fireworks. And Shaq will be spinning spinning on the ones and twos, as the kids say inside. 
Um, we lost the a really kids don't say that, yeah the Melissa. kids don't say that do they? Uh, really cool stuff no. going on. A really neat. Not event. since you were a kid. Oh God, that was so long ago. We had actual ones and twos. Um, so yeah, so so go check it out. Bring the family, and then I believe on Sunday there's a free baseball scrimmage against Texas State. Not entirely sure on the time, but we'll make sure we get something up on that. So you can have uh, in between your football, you can have basketball and baseball, uh, and and maybe salvage what what could be an otherwise. Uh, rough weekend for TCU fans so uh, yeah definitely go out check out basketball team is a lot of new faces but uh, really really excited about some of these guys uh, I, I think that that there is reason for optimism amongst TCU basketball despite the fact they were picked to finish 10th in the Big 12 yeah but Ken Palm has, has them in a better shape yeah. better spot than, than seventh, human voters do 7th would probably get yeah. them in they can finish seventh in the conference. That'd be a bubble get them team. In. Yeah, it'd be a bubble team for sure. But that's a podcast for another time, Melissa. This thing has gone on long enough at this point, and so we will end it here. Thank you for listening, even in spite of the despair you may feel when it comes to TCU football. Please, please, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes or on Spotify or whatever your podcast source is of choice. Read all of the articles on Frogs of War. Leave us nasty comments like other folks have been doing. If you feel <laughs> no, like that's I've had the enough case. of that. I'm a very sensitive and emotional person. Please don't leave me any more nasty comments today. <laughs> I'm gonna put I'm gonna put my helmet and chest plate on. I'm gonna wander in there in just a few moments. <laughs> I'm gonna go to bed. Uh, you have fun with fine. that. <laughs> it will be fine. Um, but this has been the Frogs of War podcast. Thank you as always for listening. We really do, even in the hard times, enjoy collaborating with y'all and commiserating with y'all around TCU athletics. I am Jamie Plunkett. I'm Melissa Chewbosser. And go Frogs. Go Frogs.